You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Robert Gordon, who is a professor of social science at Northwestern University, also the author of uh, a number of books, perhaps most famously this book right here, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. Uh, Welcome, Robert. Glad to be here. Like I said, this book is actually quite famous, and even though now it is nearly a decade old, the things that you point out in this book, which really is, I was rereading it just recently, and it I could not believe how comprehensive it is going all the way back to the 1870s is where it really takes off. And you really highlight how much we still underestimate the radical transformations that took place in 1870 to 1970, and how perhaps we may also be overestimating (laughs) the extent to which things are changing since 1970. And since my life more or less corresponds to the time period 1970 till now, and my father's life corresponded to that previous period beginning in around 1920s, and his parents started in the 1870s, I grew up with all sorts of stories about what life was like. But you said that the inspiration for this book came about when you were, I guess you ran into this book called The Good Old Days. (laughs) <laughs> and they weren't so good. And, and that's what really brought home to you how yeah. much... The title of the book was the, the Good Old Days, They Were Really Terrible. And it had chapters on with cartoons and drawings of all the horrible things that people went through. Railroad cars, the smoke from the locomotive got inside the car and the passengers could hardly breathe. I remember that cartoon. Haven't looked at that book in a long time. I just ordered a copy because I'd never heard of it. <laughs> so I figured I needed to check it out. But I think that when we're trying to figure out progress, we we often fall back on things like GDP growth. And we have to look to something. We're looking for some subjective perception of change is subject to all sorts of misconceptions and illusions. So we're looking for some objective metric. And so we often fall back on GDP per capita. And I think in this book, you highlight how, as a metric, that does a pretty good job, but it misses out on a lot of stuff. What are sort of the inherent limitations of looking at things like GDP per capita? GDP, the total amount that we produce, does not reflect the full benefits to everyday households of the new inventions that came out. And one of the best examples of that is the spread between 1870 and 1930 of running water and sanitation sewer pipes that traversed almost every American city. Back before 1870, typically people had to carry water into their houses. The water didn't come in through pipes. And think of all the underground pipes under all the streets of America. Most of those were laid in the inner cities back in this period of the late 19th and early 20th century. It made an enormous difference in people's lives, but it didn't really factor into GDP by anything like the quantity of difference that it made. A more recent example of the same idea is that uh, smartphones are an invention that 
has very little impact on GDP. They're made abroad and treated as imports, but social networks and the many functions of your smartphone make a big difference in everyday life. People have worked to try to quantify how much that is, but very little of it goes into GDP. So this problem of national production not matching consumer welfare is is an old one. And the invention of running water and indoor toilets is perhaps the most evocative of those examples. Is there a way to get around those limitations? You've got to study each product and try to figure out a way to to estimate how much it's worth. Think of the difference made by electric light replacing candles and kerosene. The cost to the consumer of the electricity and the light bulbs actually was less than constantly buying candles and buying kerosene lamps and kerosene oil, but they were getting a much brighter light. That's another great example of how the consumer benefit exceeded the contribution to GDP. And there's no way to get at that without tackling each individual product by itself. And that job has never really been done fully. All we can do is point to these great inventions and try to contemplate life without them. Contemplate the usefulness of your smartphone if electricity had never been invented. Now, I remember when I was studying in grad school the causes of the first Industrial Revolution, there was this belief in in the big push and the idea that you had to increase the amount of capital available for each worker in in order for productivity uh, to increase. Now, we, we don't generally think that way now. I mean, that's one thing that can increase productivity. We tend to focus on this thing called total factor productivity. Could you talk a bit about how we measure total factor productivity and why it is that this managed to increase so much during the time period you discuss? First of all, talk about the plain old word productivity means output per hour. So you take the total amount of production measured for the country by GDP, and you divide it by the total number of hours of work. So-called total factor productivity takes the same numerator, the same GDP, and divides it not just by labor hours, but by a weighted average of labor hours and the input of other things that matter, primarily capital. Now, how do we weight together the labor hours and the capital? We take the share of total income that is earned by labor, let's say 70%, and the share of total income earned by capital, say 30%. So total factor productivity growth would be the growth of total output minus the contribution of labor, which is 0.7 times the growth in labor hours, minus the contribution of capital, which is 0.3 times the growth in capital input. Now, of course, measuring the capital input is a tough job on itself because we have to take account of quality changes in the capital. And one of the fuzzy dividing lines in measuring total factor productivity is how much of the innovation is attributed to the capital and treated as an increase in the quantity of the capital, thus diminishing that ratio I just expressed, and how much of it comes out as the difference between output and input growth. And that dividing line is is somewhat arbitrary. It depends on how good a job you do in taking account of the improved quality of capital. A good example is computers. Computers could be measured as the dollars of expenditure on computers, or it could be measured as the output computers are capable of in terms of 
number of calculations per second. Of course, we know that uh, computers have become exponentially more capable uh, year after year, decade after decade. The number of transistors in a computer chip has doubled every two years since 50 years ago. If we attribute all of the increased calculation power of computers to the capital, then we're not going to have much total factor productivity left. No matter how you do it, if you do it consistently, you still get a picture that the amount of production the economy can achieve over the long century and a half that we're talking about is noticeably more rapid in the period between 1920 and 1970 than it was either before or after. Now, all these great innovations that you describe in the book, from networking all of our homes to moving everybody off the farm and into uh, more urban areas and also suburban areas, these happened in the early part of this period. But it was really towards the latter part of this period, particularly in the 1950s, I think, where total factor productivity growth was highest. So how do, how do we explain that? Well, the 50s were certainly innovative, but most of these innovations actually happened earlier. No, you're actually not right. If you look at the history of U.S. productivity growth, whether it's total factor productivity or regular productivity output per hour, uh, the most rapid growth was between 1929 and 1950. And it, it doesn't help much to try to break down that 21 years into how much was uh, before or after World War II. Um, the fact is that the economy was producing well under its capacity in, in the 1930s, and it's sort of a black box to figure out uh, how much the economy was capable of. But we were producing at full capacity in 1929, and we certainly were in 1948. And so the growth rate between those two years was by far the most rapid that we have had. There's an economist named Alex Field who claims that the 1930s were the most technologically progressive decade in history. And while I've quibbled with him about the 30s versus the 40s, the fact is that the economy in 1941, at the end of the Great Depression, was far more productive than it was at the beginning of the Great Depression. So there were lots of things going on behind the scenes in industrial labs, the invention of plastics and chemicals, the spreading of electric-controlled machinery, that was happening even as the economy was depressed and many factories were idle. Pulling back from that 20-year period, the growth of productivity really took off after World War I and came to a halt as far as the most rapid period around 1970. It really is a, an amazing story. Now, many of the if not most of the inventions that made possible that productive half century after 1920 actually were invented starting around 1870. So it just took a long time for the fruits of these inventions to show up in in productivity. This is related to a point that the famous economic historian Paul David made a long time ago, that it was a good 40 years between the first electric dynamo, the first electric generator installed in the Pearl Street generating station in lower Manhattan in 1882, and the takeoff of manufacturing productivity around 1923. That's a good 40 years delay in the full effect of electricity. And of course, during that period, they were figuring out how how to harness electricity, how to make machines that were 
individual size. So each worker had his own machine instead of having great giant steam boilers and systems of shafts and pulleys and belts brought the power of the factory to the individual worker uh, with the inherent inefficiency of trying to power the tasks of individual workers with one central enormous power source. The invention of electricity made it possible to have many smaller machines tailored to each individual task, inherently a far more productive way of operating. And that took off in the 1920s, clearly was improving behind the scenes uh, in the 1930s, came to fruition in the enormous amount the American economy produced during World War II. And then by 1948, we just came out of that a much more productive economy than we'd gone into the Great Depression 20 years earlier. The full story of exactly how that happened and how we became so productive in World War II is still something of a mystery. The enormous achievement of coordinating the conversion of all those factories from making stockings to making parachutes, from making cars to making tanks, from making civilian airplanes to the enormous number of aircraft, both military and civilian, that were manufacturing during World War II. The famous Willow Run factory built by Henry Ford uh, out near Ann Arbor was built in nine months in 1941, and by early 1944 was turning out one four-engine bomber every hour. Every hour. Just a much more rapid pace of production than anything we're doing now. Boeing is struggling to produce 500 planes a year, and yet we were putting together these thousands of parts into these complicated bombers that devastated Germany and Japan in that very small amount of time. Well, I mean, you, you quote Robert Sola, who famously said uh, about a more recent time period that, you know, computers are everywhere except in the productivity statistics. W would contemporaries have said the same thing about electrification, I guess, in, in the early days, right? Immediately after Thomas Edison's discoveries? It's unlikely they would it's unlikely they would have said it because they didn't have productivity statistics. They didn't have measures of GDP. Our measures of how much the economy produced starting in 1870, going through 1929, are the work of heroic backcasting by economic historians, uh, using contemporary measures of production of individual industries, and then outside of manufacturing, trying to guess how much the economy was producing in the form of uh, services and transportation. So they wouldn't have said that we can see electricity everywhere except in the productivity statistics uh, if they had productivity statistics. The fact is, uh, they could see everywhere. Let's not just focus too much on electricity, as important as it was. We also had, by a remarkable coincidence, in the fourth quarter of 1879, we had not only Edison's pathbreaking experiment that finally found a filament that would make an elect electric light bulb work, but we also had on the other side of the Atlantic, Conrad Benz perfected the internal combustion engine. And after a delay of little less than 20 years, we got the first automobiles and the first trucks, and after that, the first tractors that the internal combustion engine made possible. And soon after that, we had Wilbur and Orville Wright with their first airplane in 1903. So many things were happening so rapidly 
then. We got electricity. We got the internal combustion engine. We got communications in the form of the telephone in 1876. The phonograph, the motion picture, electronic communications with Marconi in 1896. You think of all the different dimensions of the modern world, and they were all basically invented within a 30-year period, both in Europe and in the United States. Now, there are specific characteristics of the American environment that allowed a lot of these things to develop in a much more accelerated way, apart from just the sheer scale of the American economy. You talked about some areas of public investment, right? In order for the cars to develop, you needed to have roads, right? If you didn't have roads, then then cars would be useless, right? And so what were some of the characteristics of the way, I don't know, public investment was made or the way in which these large public utilities that were originally private utilities developed in in the American context that that allowed for the development of of these technologies at scale? Well, to start with what is, in the long run view, has got to be the most important invention, which is electricity. That was primarily developed by the private sector. And private utility companies not only built the generators, but they also built the transmission lines uh, that came to the individual houses and factories. If we think about the main transportation method of that period, the railroad, that was also private investment, uh, much of it financed by the export of capital from Great Britain, where British companies bought shares in American railroads. The American government was uh, heavily responsible for the spread of railroads throughout the United States by giving land grants of enormous quantities of land surrounding the railroad routes that the railroads could then sell off to the towns that would be made possible by the arrival of the railroads. So the government had that precedent of working in tandem with the private sector in making the land grants. Of course, in the case of the highway, there were very few toll roads. So the spread of highways across the United States, which really didn't start until after 1910 or so, was an achievement of a combination of federal government grants state governments building the highways, and city governments financing the building of city streets with local taxes. As one landmark, the the year 1915 is a useful benchmark because that's the period in which the number of motorized vehicles uh, surpassed the number of horse-drawn vehicles in American cities and rural farms. It was really only after World War I that we got any kind of semblance of national highways that would allow you to drive from New York to San Francisco. Following 40, 50 years earlier when we got the first transcontinental railroads in 1869. I find it interesting that it was the Postal Service, I think, that said, we're only going to be able to deliver into your community if you have roads, right? (laughs) That's right. And the American highway system consisted in the 20s and 30s with the ever-spreading U.S. route numbers, which, as you remember, you're too young to remember, but we had U.S. Route 1 that went down the Atlantic coast and U.S. Route 99 and 101 that went down through California, 101 along the Pacific coast and Route 99 down the Central Valley of California as federal highways. 
And then we had US 10 in the, in, through Minnesota and North Dakota and US 90 down through Louisiana and Texas. Then when they developed the so-called Eisenhower system of interstate highways, which was one of the most benevolent and benign forms of public investment ever conceived, they reversed all the numbers so that now the low number was on the Pacific coast with I-5 going through the Central Valley, and the high number, Interstate 95, of course, goes down the Atlantic coast, and the same reversal from north to south of the east-west highway. So we have Interstate 90 in the north and Interstate 10 in the south. The interstate highway system and the enormous increase in the feasible speed of trucking that was built out between the late 1950s and the early 1970s is one of the reasons why productivity growth was so rapid in that period of the 1950s and 60s. When we strip out the role of the business cycle, which made productivity go down in recessions and go up in expansions, and take account of that factor, it's clear that productivity growth was at its most rapid between 1948 and about 1966, and then began to slow down through 1972, and then slowed down very substantially, partly due to the dislocation created by the oil crisis and increase in the price of oil that happened in the mid-1970s. I think the most provocative point in, in the book that, that has raised quite a bit of discussion is, is the idea of the slowdown since that peak period. And it, it's hard to dispute the, the data, but is this inevitable simply because there are transformations that can only happen once? If we, we look at infant mortality, I mean, you know, when you reduce infant mortality by 90%, it's kind of hard to do anything that's going to be quite as dramatic going forward. Is, is it just the nature of diminishing returns or is, is there something about the structural conditions for innovation in today's world that, that make it more difficult? Let's take the example of speed. Speed increased when we replaced the sailing ship by the steamship, speed increased when we replaced horse-drawn carriages with railroads, speed increased again on the land when we replaced horse-drawn carriages with motor cars, and speed increased again when we invented the piston airplane, and increased one last time when we invented the jet airplane. The Boeing 707 was introduced in 1958, and it flew faster in 1958 than our commercial airplanes like the Boeing 737 travel now. Current airplanes don't fly as fast as they could because to fly faster would use too much fuel. And fuel is much more expensive in relative terms now than it used to be. So that's one clear example of how we reach the end of the road at increasing speed because to go faster than the current airplanes fly would involve breaking the sound barrier. And that creates an intolerable amount of noise, which prevents any suggestion that we have supersonic airplanes flying over land. And it's prevented the development of supersonic airliners, which turned out to be uneconomical. It simply took too much fuel to push airplanes past the speed of sound. And so the British and French Concorde was eventually grounded as uneconomic about 20 years ago. So that's a great example. Now, we shouldn't act or talk as if all productivity growth stopped after 1970, because we did have the things we've been talking about, electricity, the internal combustion engine, communications, 
radio, television, all those things are part of what we call the second industrial revolution. Uh, you studied as a student the first industrial revolution back in the late 18th century with the invention of uh, steam engines and power looms and power weaving. But there's a third industrial revolution with the invention first of the mainframe computer and then in the 1980s, the personal computer that came to a, a head in terms of its productivity impact in the late 1990s and early 2000s. This was the period when we made the transition in every business office, in every small business, in every large business, in every supermarket, from typewriters and file cabinets and old-fashioned electric cash registers to personal computers hooked together with the internet, equipped with search engines, tied together with broadband, with retail businesses having barcode scanning, electronic management of inventories. And as a result of this tremendous arrival, more or less at the same time of the different uses of computers, uh, in a sense, the the transition from the mainframe computer to the personal computer in the 80s and 90s was analogous to the transition from the big steam engine in the middle of the factory to the individual small electric motors stationed at every workstation of every worker. So the a personal computer age made possible a, a distribution of computing power at every workstation, every typist, every secretary all of a sudden had enormously more power. No more retyping of manuscripts, no more wasted time retyping letters, uh, no more use of dictaphones because most people started typing their own letters on their personal, personal computers with the invention of email. So that brought a revival of productivity growth, both conventional productivity and total factor productivity that extended for not 50 years like the earlier one, but about eight years. In our productivity data for the United States, we have a distinct revival of productivity between 1990, basically 1995 and 2005, to more or less the same rapid growth that had occurred before 1970. The problem is, and the reason why my book talks about the faltering of innovation is that it was only it only lasted for eight or ten years, and then productivity growth slowed down again because we had put into effect the big rewarding uses of the personal computer and the internet. Now, of course, the invention of the smartphone is a, is a different story. There, I think we have a, a big case of benefits not being included in GDP with everybody carrying around a small computer in their in their pocket. We were at lunch today in the economics department, and the conversation drifted from the fact that the next American economic meetings will be in San Antonio, and then that brought up the Alamo, that brought up the American-Mexican War, it brought up how much territory America got from Mexico as a result of that small and short war. And then we had a debate among us as to how much territory Mexico got as opposed to the Louisiana Purchase. One of the uh, younger faculty members immediately pulled out their phone and within seconds had a map of the Louisiana Purchase on their sitting right there at the dining table. So those things are obviously consumer surplus that are not part of GDP. And we have not yet got any kind of consensus about how how valuable that is.
of course, you're bound to ask at some point about the prospect for artificial intelligence and bringing another big productivity revival. And that is a matter of increased discussion and debate among economists, with the consensus being that no one knows and no one is sure. But I can offer a little, a few reflections to be a little bit skeptical on that if you want to talk about it. Well, well, I do, but some people might have a difficult time reconciling what, what they perceive to be a radical transformation in their everyday lives with the relatively non-impressive <laughs> changes in, in productivity statistics. If I just sit down and look at what I'll cook on a given evening and compare it to what I cooked back in the 1970s as a kid, you go to the local supermarket in a well-to-do neighborhood and you have carrots and celery and iceberg lettuce. And now with one click of a mouse, I can have all sorts of food products from anywhere in the world. Even looking at that, it seems like that's something that's not going to be picked up, right? The increase in, in variety of merchandise. And of course, being able to have the world's information at one's fingertips. Here in Silicon Valley, everyone believes that things like Uber and, and Google and, and Facebook and so forth are, are radically transforming the world. Is it more difficult to measure these sorts of changes than the changes in, that flowed from the second industrial revolution? Is there something inherently more difficult about them? I, th I think this gets back to the distinction between consumer surplus and GDP that we talked about earlier. The enormous difference made by indoor bathrooms, by electric light, by changing the whole definition of night and day produced a huge change in consumer well-being for those who lived in the 1920s compared to those who lived in the 1860s. Uber is a good example of an increase in convenience that does not show up in the productivity statistics. You still have one passenger and one driver. Uh, it's just that for the passenger, it was far easier to locate the driver, to make the match between the driver and the passenger than it was back in the days of the yellow taxi. You called a taxi on the phone, you had no idea when it was coming, where it was, and people stood out in the street in the winter waving for taxis. It may have worked in midtown Manhattan where there were so many of them, but it didn't work in most other parts of the country. Uber is a great example of an increase in, in convenience. Of course, searching with Google compared to the old days of encyclopedias and dictionaries uh, and going to the library is an even better example of the convenience of obtaining information. I mean, I remember standing in front of the copy machine at the library as a grad student for, you know, a good two hours a day, you know, Xeroxing old journal articles and stuff. And that's all gone. I remember carrying punch cards when I did my PhD thesis in 1967, and they had all sorts of tables in the back. We had a little computer, a little mainframe computer in the basement of the economics department. But to get your printout, you would have to take the punch cards that were produced by the computer and carry them across the room to the printer. And they were two separate operations, not even connected by a wire. There's been plenty of progress, and a lot of that came into fruition in that period that I mentioned between 1995 and 2005, where it even showed up in the productivity statistics about seven years after Robert Solo made his famous pronouncement of how we can see the computer age everywhere but in the productivity statistics. Now, when people talk about the impact of artificial intelligence, first of all, artificial intelligence has, has been with us for a while. There's just 
new generations of flavors of artificial intelligence. Should, should we expect the, the, the latest generation to be any different in terms of its impact from the previous generations of automation and, and machine learning? Your first point that artificial intelligence has been around for a while is one of the first ones I would make. We've had job losses throughout the last decade as artificial intelligence and voice recognition have made possible the replacement of most customer service agents by automated customer service calls. We all hate them. We try to figure out what magic words or pushes on the phone dial will get us connected with a human agent because the artificial intelligence responses are so rigid, but they're gradually improving. I think to interpret chat GPT and the potential for job losses, for future productivity gains, it helps to break down the economy into three groups of workers. One group produces goods in mines, in farms, in factories. And they're producing objects with other objects. Uh, They're not involved in creating textual or visual material. And so I think the impact in the goods sector is going to be fairly minor, certainly compared to the development of automation. And we could talk separately about the the use of robots, which is, of course, mainly in manufacturing. So, for instance, I just had some new masonry done on my patio, and I I don't think that the methods have changed in in 100 years, but I think that the the guy's doing it is is getting quite well compensated now compared to perhaps... Yes, he's getting compensated, and that's that's part of Baumol's cost disease. Baumol, this is very relevant to chat GPT too. Baumol's used the example of a string quartet. A string quartet, if you're, at least if you're seeing them live, cannot improve its productivity and the amount of music it plays by the four players. But all the other occupations are benefiting from more machines, more automation, more inventions. And so the productivity in the rest of the economy goes up and people's wages go up. So to get people to be willing to play string quartets, you have to keep raising the wages of the players, and thus it costs more and more to go to see a concert. The same thing is true with chat GPT. You have some parts of the economy, like your mason, and by coincidence, we're having an an old masonry wall rebuilt right as we speak by masons that are using 100-year-old techniques, and probably the wall itself is 100 years old, and it's not going to look any different when they finish than it did 100 years ago, it's just going to, they keep, are keeping it from falling down. So you have these occupations. Then you have the, what we might call contact services, retail, wholesale, restaurants, hotels, and much of medicine and education is still one-on-one. Nurses, hospitals full of people delivering meals, pushing patients around, entering hospital rooms, delivering pills changing beds, a lot of manual labor that's not being replaced by robots and is not going to be affected by chat GPT. It turns out that the number of employees in those two sectors, uh, the goods and the contact services, are about 70% of employment. That leaves maybe 25 or 30% in the parts of the economy that have been amenable to working at home, to working from home. That would be information technology, administration, legal finance, insurance, those occupations are going to be impacted by ChatGPT, but each one in a different way. Some of the most vulnerable sub-occupations that we read about, just reading about yesterday, 
illustrators of book covers. There's almost nothing that artificial intelligence can't create in the form of an image for a book cover. And the work of individual artists who used to do this by hand is probably going to go away quite rapidly. Doing routine marketing brochures is probably going to be automated in a way that it was, was never possible before. So a lot of people who work with text are going to find that their jobs are going to be replaced. It's going to happen very slowly and for two, two reasons. One is that people, we still need people to tell the uh, language machine what to do. And we need people at the other end to check it for errors. And there are all sorts of errors that come in as these chat GPT machines scan the internet, not knowing what on the internet is right and what is wrong, what is an appropriate analogy, what is not an appropriate analogy. Some of the most immediate effects of chat GPT are actually affecting education or affecting a seminar I will be teaching in only six weeks on the role of economics in the two world wars, where my students are going to write essays. And the first essay they write is going to be on the causes of World War I. And I can imagine, without some rather draconian rules and tricks on my part, that I could get 15 students to submit identical essays generated by ChatGPT on the causes of World War I. So that's an immediate effect of large language machines in the education sector. It is not going to affect productivity. If anything, it's going to raise the workload of instructors as they, as they try to figure out how to deal with it. So I think the, the future, it's bound to improve productivity. But uh, in my own recent research, if we compare the forecasts of productivity growth that are baked into the government's budget forecasts and economic forecasts, our productivity over the last nearly 20 years has been running somewhat slower uh, than they're assuming for the future. Uh, so there's room for productivity growth to improve by a substantial amount without really changing the overall outlook for this enormous increase in public debt that is going to go together with higher interest rates and severely impede the ability of future governments to finance Medicare, Social Security, and the general operations of government. Well, towards the end of the book, you, you mentioned some headwinds, right? You say that historians probably shouldn't be in the business of forecasting, but that you're going to give it a go anyway. And, and so you mentioned these headwinds. And, and I'm wondering, since this book is nearly a decade old, whether or not you see those headwinds as being stronger or, or weaker. And, and I guess when we look back at the 30s and, and the 40s, certainly we wouldn't want to take away from that period that if we really want to jumpstart productivity, we should have a recession and a, and a war. But I mean, are there some policy prescriptions that we can learn from the time period that you studied that, that might be helpful when it comes to reducing some of these headwinds? Let's first of all talk about what some of the headwinds are. One of the main ones is education. We had a total transition in the American economy from the late 19th century when only 10% of students completed high school, to 1980, when about 85% of people uh, completed high school. Uh, the percent that completed college has very gradually increased, so that roughly 35 to 40% of our 30-year-olds have completed a four-year college education. That still leaves 60% or so who have not. And we have a, a big problem. Not only is the pace at which the 
college attainment is slowing down. But a large fraction, a surprisingly large fraction of those who get four-year college degrees can't find a job that requires a college degree. Those are your baristas in Starbucks and the very educated people you meet in many restaurants and retail stores that seem to uh, be too intelligent to be working in what are basically very menial jobs. So that's one of the headwinds. The fact that during the 20th century, we had a big boost to our productivity coming from the spread of secondary education and then tertiary uh, higher education that's slowing down. Another big problem is inequality. We've had a big increase in contrast. The period between World War II and 1975, uh, which has been called the Great Compression, the compression of the high incomes and the low incomes came closer together with the lower income middle class benefiting from the widespread power of labor unions to boost their real income and the relatively low values of the stock market, which compressed the incomes of the high-income people who owned a lot of stock. Starting in the late 1970s and early 1980s, this was reversed. The incomes at the low end were compressed by the gradual weakening of unions, the spread of right-to-work laws, the continual erosion of the real purchasing power of the minimum wage, and the general reduced bargaining power of workers, while at the top, we had an incredible increase in the relative income of top executives compared to average workers. In 1975, the average CEO of a large corporation earned 30 times that of the median worker. By 1995-2000, that ratio was no longer 30, it was 300, a tenfold increase in the ratio of CEO pay to average workers. We have the superstar phenomenon. As media have becoming more widespread, the relative income of sports stars and entertainment stars has increased. Uh, You have sports stars being paid 10, 20, 30 million dollars a year, while the income of the average or median American worker is increased by a pathetic half to 1% a year since the late 1970s. So that's inequality. And that was partly made possible not only by the CEO pay and the superstar pay, but also by the fact that the stock market has exploded as a share of GDP. Believe it or not, in 1982, the S&P 500 average was only a value of 100. Today, it's around 4,400. That's an increase of a factor of 44. And that feeds into the well-being, not just the wealth, but also the income of those who are paid with stock options. So those are some of the, just two of the headwinds. And in suggesting policies to deal with them, I focused on the inequality and education problem together. We have, of course, the big controversy about affirmative action and the need to give a special advantage to those in high school who don't qualify on their test scores for uh, college admission. If we look at the disadvantaged groups, their test scores are way below the majority white population at the end of high school, in the eighth grade, in the third grade, in kindergarten. We have a real problem in this country, more so than in some other countries, about the 
abilities, the relative abilities of young children. And the way to deal with that is preschool. We need a nationwide program of preschool that is directed toward low-income families. We've just had a, a big uh, study that's come out from the Opportunity Insights group at Harvard. That's Raj Chetty and John Friedman, who have just come out with a big study of SAT scores and shown that there's a completely perfect correlation uh, between parental income and SAT scores. The top SAT scores are earned by the children of the top 1% in the income distribution. People from the bottom 20% in the income distribution never get, almost never get, top SAT scores or even in the top half. So this is a deeply fundamental problem of inequality in educational attainment, and it is not a fault of the schools. It's a problem that goes back to the family, the difference in the childhood environment of children who have college-educated parents compared to those who don't, and particularly children who grow up with single parents. So we need a much more serious job of preschool education, and that's the kind of thing we need. We've got this enormous difference in life expectancy between college-educated and non-college-educated households, uh, recently uh, studied by Ann Case and Angus Deaton of Princeton. And that is both a matter of the devastating effect on low-income people of the loss of jobs. Angus Deaton is a big opponent of free trade because he's seen the damage that factory closings have done to the well-being and income of blue-collar workers. Whatever you think about free trade, uh, we've got a huge problem in this country that has to do with the lack of universal medical care, the enormous expense of medical care that bankrupts people even with decent medical insurance. And that's something that ideally, if we want to break through some of these headwinds to future progress, and if you want to ask a simple question, what is ChatGPT going to do to inequality? Maybe it's going to take more jobs away from relatively high-paid workers who are in the business of creating words and images and not have an effect on the relative income of Masons. Uh, we're still going to have the need for individual manufacturing workers, farmers, even with their ever better machines. And we're going to still have the need for people to stock the grocery store shelves. And as productivity languishes in those industries, we're going to have the Baumol effect working again, that productivity growth is going to be slow in some parts of the economy, balanced by more rapid productivity growth in some of the more creative word-producing or image-producing sectors. And so just to connect it back to productivity, it's not so much the fact that the rich are getting so rich, but that there's a huge segment of the population that is being made less productive because we're failing to invest in them. Yeah. And my intuition is that we'll get some productivity benefit from chat GPTs. Some of it will offset the gradual slowdown that's occurring as we run out of innovations in other, in other sectors. And it could well be that looking back at the decade between 2023 and 2033, our productivity growth shows some signs of revival. I don't expect anything to match 
the decade of the 90s and early 2000s, because I don't see the large language models as being analogous to the replacement of typewriters and file cabinets, the general elimination of the need to deal with paper and having everything instantly available on a screen. That's just a quantum leap in the ability of everyone working with words and images that I think exceeds the kind of change that we're likely to see. Well, Robert, look, let's hope you're wrong. (laughs) That, that In fact, we will hopefully once again see the kind of productivity increases that we saw during this century that you describe so well in this book. It's called The, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. Check it out. It's a classic, and I hope that you can someday update it with some new chapters. We'll see. We'll see whether uh, that happens soon enough. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.